If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 46. Uh, and this is really, so we're going backwards a little bit. Sibby started us off looking at a series of three, uh, what we call parables of controversy. Uh, these are parables of controversy. And he actually chose that really hard passage last week. He thought he had a sermon on it, <laughs> and he found out he didn't. Um, so uh, anyway, but he did a masterful job. I just praise the Lord for that brother and how he leaned into that. But we're going to be looking at the two parables before that and looking at the context this comes out of. But as we jump into it, I want to just tell you that I'm a bit of a pest. I'm a bit of a pest. In fact, sometimes I can be a lot of a pest. And I say that because I was reflecting recently back on my teen years, and I loved to find like a phrase that would rile people up and just say it, right? Here's the phrase that I remember in particular. You would. You would. You know, if you say those two words with the right inflection, it really messes with people, right? I'm going to go get a drink of water. You would. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm getting a drink of water. Hey, by the way, young people, don't go home and do this. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, but, but I did, and it wasn't the best trait in the world. And the only reason that came to my mind this week as I was wrestling is because over the course of this last year, we uh, experienced a similar trait in one of our children in our own house, except the phrase, the two words that were uttered were not you would, it was who says? Who says? <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, can you go pick up your room? Who says? That was said with a smile on the face, right? That makes it all better. Uh, but, but can you imagine what was going on inside of me? Who says? You know, oh, King Kong, right? Like I'm ready to, to, to right the ship here. And, and, you know, there was a lot of conversations and it became a joke over the course of time. But uh, it, it just struck me this week as I was wrestling with this passage, as I was thinking of our current cultural context, you know, I think there's this reality that, um, or an instinct that when our perceived self-authority is threatened, we have a tendency to go, who says? Who says? When our perceived self-authority is threatened or challenged, we have this tendency to go, who says? Are you with me on that? Maybe not. If you're not, let me just give a couple other examples. Teenagers. (laughs) Whether or not you've said those two words, in your phase of development, when you're trying to differentiate and, and uh, exert your own self-will, discover who you are, right? I guarantee you, at least at a heart level, when your parents are like, don't do this, it's not the best for you, or no, you can't do that, mm, there's something in us. It's like, who says? Who gave you the authority? To which your parents are like, I'm your parents, right? You may have heard that before. How about this one? Masks are good for you. Masks are bad for you. You have to wear a mask. You shouldn't wear a mask. Vaccines are good for you. Vaccines are bad for you. You have to get vaccinated. Man, how many of us this year have gone, who says? Who gave you the right? How about raising children? Friends, suburban parents are crazy people. We're we're nuts. God bless you educators who have uh, held up over the onslaught of this last year. God forbid we ever encourage or talk to another parent about, hey, this might not be the best for your kid, or this might be the best for your child. In the suburbs, we tend to immediately go, who says? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? Have you picked up on any of that in your own life? Friends, I would argue 
that it's actually kind of the water we swim in, it's the air we breathe. We don't even know it's around it. It's cultural. And it's foolish for us to think that, that we can live like that every day of our lives and not import that in our relationship with the God of the universe who unequivocally says from page one of our Bible that I am the creator, you are the creation, I am ultimate authority. Any authority you have is borrowed. That authority is like the moon. It's reflecting what ultimately comes from me. Now, this just isn't in our day and age. In fact, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a friend and I were walking this week, and he quoted something that he had just read in David S. Reynolds' book from Abraham Lincoln, where Abraham Lincoln was talking about his second inaugural address after the Civil War. They were facing Reconstruction, uh, the abolition of slavery. Uh, and he used a lot of Scripture in 600-plus words to basically say, hey, slavery is wicked. And two, as we face Reconstruction, triumphalism is wicked as well. If we turn on our southern brothers and sisters and destroy them and seek revenge for that war, we've not taken the log out of our own eye, and we too are evil. That's essentially what his second address is saying. And here was his assessment on his second inaugural address. He said, I expect the speech to wear as well, perhaps better than anything I've produced, but I believe it is not immediately popular. Listen to why he thinks this would not be immediately popular. Men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty God and themselves. Let me read that again. Men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty God and themselves. He's saying we don't submit to God's authority well. When he tells us his purposes might be different than ours, we tend to balk, don't we? Well, friends, this isn't even unique to the United States of America, since those have been my quotes thus far. In fact, here's the context in which these three parables, Sibbies, and then the two we're going to talk about today come from. Matthew 21, 23, Jesus entered the temple. He begins to preach. And the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? Guess what they just said to Jesus? Says who? That's the default of our hearts. The priests and the elders from the Jewish community who knew there was a Messiah coming, who saw the fulfillment of the promises, who saw dead people raised and the blind seeing and demons cast out, look at Jesus who's teaching about himself, saying, I'm the Messiah, and they're like, who says? And really what he was doing was threatening their self-perceived authority. You see, friends, we desperately want to be our own authority, and it is a position that's impossible. It's a farce. He is the ultimate authority. Any authority we have is borrowed to be stewarded, and it is secondary. So what does it look like to submit to his authority today in our text? And the first thing we're going to look at is verses 28 to 32, and this idea of what happens when we find ourselves following other Authority. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. 
which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm increasingly convinced that unless your Spirit gives us understanding right now and forces our heart to actually submit to your authority, we will fight tooth and nail and resist it. It is our fallen nature. Would you prevent that from happening? Would you make us a people who submit to you, who trust your authority, and who see your mercy and grace offered in it? In your name, amen. All right, so here's a couple of things I want us to look at. The first thing is, is one of the terms here that Jesus is articulating, because he's talking about authority, right? There's an authority figure, a father. He goes to his sons. He says, go work in the vineyard. Or, I'm sorry. He's, yeah, he says, go work in the vineyard. And one says, I won't. But then it says in verse 29, he changed his mind, right? He changed his mind and he went. Have you ever had that moment before? No, I'm not going to do that. You go home and you think about it, or you sit in your room and you think about it, you're like, never mind, I need to go do that. The second person the father goes to, he says, hey, go and do these things. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do that in a minute. And he never does it. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is a genius. Early on, when they're questioning his authority, he asks them a question. He says, hey, uh, this baptism of John, which, just to cut the story short, is a big sign that's pointing towards Jesus as the God of the universe. He said, where'd that come from, heaven or people? And they talked amongst themselves, and they say, if we say heaven, uh, then he goes, then why are you ignoring me? And if we say if we say it comes from men, then the crowd's going to hate us. So they turned around and said, I don't know. And so Jesus is a genius, and he said, okay, well, let me tell you a story, and then I'll ask you a question. And they said, which one of these two sons does the will of the Father? And the easy answer is yes. Even though uh, initially this son said, no, I'm not going to go, eventually he did, and he did the will of the Father. And so they said, of course it's the first son. There's no way you can ignore that. And he kind of flips it on him and he says, then why on earth, even if you resisted me at first, have you not changed your mind? Have you not changed your direction about me? The prostitutes and the tax collectors, kind of the worst of the society, they've done so. They fought me tooth and nail, but eventually there was a change in their mind and they began going the opposite direction. And this term change of mind in some uh, versions uh, is also translated as repentance. It's not the typical word uh, in the Greek for repentance, but it has the same root. Uh, the meta part of metanoeo is the Greek term there. And he's saying, hey, have you, why haven't you changed your mind? So here's the first point uh, to make when we find ourselves following other authorities as our primary authority is truly believing and following Jesus means that there is a change in the direction of who we give authority to. It has to be. It's not just lip service. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but our lives don't change direction. You know, when we first moved, well, when I started dating Sarah and I had to drive on the Pennsylvania Turnpike for the first time, I realized how crazy that road actually was. Uh, when I first made that trip, the route markers or the mile markers or the exit markers, I should say, uh, did not match the mile markers and it came from down south that matched. So you kind of knew how long you had to go until the next exit. And this is before you had Siri and you punch it in Google Maps or whatever it is. And I just remember um, missing a turn and being like, I got like 10 miles. It was like 20 minutes before I could get off and start headed 
in the right direction. And friends, uh, the reality of what we see here uh, is this picture of, hey, Jesus is saying, if you're claiming to follow me and you realize, hey, you're going in the wrong direction, you have to get off the turnpike and you have to go around that little clover leaf and head in the opposite way. It's not just this intellectual ascent, yeah, I follow Jesus, now I'm going to continue following the same authorities I always have. There is a change in the direction of our lives and what we give our authority to. It's no longer ourself. Friends, the ultimate authorities that are offered to us today are endless. Here's some of them. The first one is what I think we've already seen, self. Man, in our culture, that is our biggest fight. Resisting self as our ultimate authority. Sexuality, if that hasn't become one of the biggest gods and authorities in our culture, I don't know what has. Gender, race, our tribe, our politics, our comfort, our safety, our money, our children. These are all some of the greatest temptations for us to bow our knee to on a day-to-day basis and offer our ultimate submission to. And what Jesus is saying is all of those come under submission of me. And for us in our context, of my word. Now the reality too is we might be able to put the perfect theology together about these things, but but here's where we also fall short of God's word. We could come and say, here's the perfect theology of whatever situation we're talking about. But do you know what we do to one another? kind of a horizontal litmus test. We will eviscerate each other verbally or usually now behind the scenes online. We won't forgive. We'll gossip. We'll slander. We won't follow Matthew 18 and go directly to the person before we broadcast it to our 1,200 friends. Friends, if you just stop for a couple of seconds, you... I pray you're able to see how in some way, shape, or form, every single one of us, you and me included, constantly have to fight against rejecting God's Word in some way, shape, or form, be it an issue, or be it our response to an issue, or be it how we love another person. And what God is saying here is as you continually look into your heart and where you bow the knee to other authorities, He calls us to get off the interstate, going the wrong direction, and turn towards his ultimate authority. I believe that has to be a constant posture of his people. Now, there's this myth of proof, right? There's some of us who are like, well, Anthony, I would believe and I would bow the knee to his authority if you just proved X, Y, or Z to me, if the Bible is true or if God is true. And, and, and I just want to touch and go on this, Matthew 21. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe in him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed in him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe in him. Friends, even if Jesus were standing before us, resurrected, holes in his hands and feet, if our hearts remain in its unregenerate form, we'll look at him and go, nope, I need more proof. I don't believe it. Why? Because his authority threatens ours. And really, when we become believers, what we're doing is we're saying, I give up all of my own authority, and I give it entirely to you. Friends, regeneration and that change of direction is a work of the Spirit. And I believe now more than ever, 
that we must be begging the Lord to do his work among us, or else we will constantly fall prey to bowing the knee to whatever authority we can come up with, and we can get really creative. There's unexpected admittance when you look at who actually shows up. He's saying, you who think you're keeping my law, right? In our context, it would be uh, you elders, you pastors, you women's Bible study leaders, you home group leaders. You could be keeping all these things the way that you think uh, you should, but your heart can be so far from me that you're not actually a follower of me at all. And in fact, the people who we would least expect it in our culture, the bullies, the power-hungry, the sexually broken, who just submit and open their hands to Jesus and say, I give all to you, they're the ones who will actually inherit the kingdom of God. In our modern proclivities, that is highly offensive if we stop and think about it. But that's the nature of God's kingdom. So two things, anyone can come to Jesus through repentance and faith. But the second thing Jesus is saying is it's never enough to make promises to God or to claim to believe or to just simply recite a creed, what counts as spiritual-generated devotion and submission to his authority. All right, we're going to go speed round here through this next point, but we're going to look at the fate of those who do reject his authority, and we're going to look at the hope that's offered in this passage. The fate part first, 33 to 41, and this is a second parable. He says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, who put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants and tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance." And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard and other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So first, there's a fate aspect as to what's going on. I'm just going to talk you through what each element of this parable actually represents. The first element is obviously the master. And that's the God of the universe. That's Yahweh, right? The triune God. The vineyard is actually Israel itself. This is a retelling of Isaiah 5, 1-7, where uh, basically God gives Isaiah this vision of saying, hey, Israel is a vineyard, just like this. Build a tower, so on and so forth. You can go back and read it. The workers are Israel's corrupt leadership who have continually rejected God's authority and turned to their own. The servants who are beaten and killed are the prophets that God has sent to his people for millennia. And they've beaten them and they've murdered them. And then finally, you have the son. And on this side of the story where these people are actually hearing it, they probably don't entirely get it, but we do on this side. The son is Jesus and they too murdered him. Verse 38 gives us this picture of a danger of sometimes when we feel like we're following God. It says, hey, Here comes the son. Let's kill him and take his inheritance. And it's this picture of oftentimes we want the stuff of God, his blessings and and what have you, but we don't want Jesus himself. Verse 42, Jesus offers what's called a rabbinic rebuke. He says, have you never seen in the scriptures? You never want to hear a rabbi say that, right? That's typically a rebuke is coming 
hold on tight. And what Jesus does is he quotes Psalm 118. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. All right, so can we just talk about uh, the stone or this idea of a cornerstone for just a second? It's a little bit foreign to our modern ears. But when people would build back in the ancient Near Eastern time, they would have to have a stone that represents the cornerstone. Right? It's what it would build out from, and it would, it would be what bears a lot of the weight of the building. And you would want a good stone. And the masons would need to pick a good stone. So it's kind of like buying a cantaloupe at the store. Anybody ever buy a cantaloupe at the store? I hate buying cantaloupe at the store. I never pick a good one. They open it, and we have to have a chisel to you know, get it open. We usually waste a few bucks. But you know, some people are like, you just kind of push where the... And smell, which you can't do in COVID anyway. You can't do that, right? Uh, or you kind of, some people thunk it, right? And they can tell, I don't have that superpower. Uh, so I just throw <laughs> the cantaloupe away. But what you'll see is people going through the cantaloupe and they'll be like, oh, that's not a good one. That's not a good one. That, oh, here's a good one. That's the picture of exactly what's happening here in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The masons would go to the pile of stones and they would say, which cornerstone is the best? Nope. Nope. Ah, Right? And what Jesus is saying is you've actually rejected the true cornerstone. You've picked up the Messiah and you have thrown him away. Now there's a play on words in the Hebrew that we probably wouldn't catch, but the Hebrew term for son is ben, B-E-N, and the Hebrew term, term for stone is even or E-B-E-N. And so he's getting their attention as he talks about this and read on a little bit further. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying there is a repercussion to rejecting the true cornerstone. You'll either break your toes on it, and it will crush you. Now that might be a mixture of metaphors. How does a cornerstone fall from the sky and crush you? He's looking back to Daniel 2. Daniel has a vision of this statue that's being built of bronze and clay and all these different metals, and at the end, there's a stone that comes and crushes it. Daniel interprets it as, hey, these different layers of metals and clay, these are superpowers to come, the Roman Empire and maybe Assyria and so on and so forth. Not Assyria. Anyway, superpowers to come. And eventually, Jesus will crush them all, will crush their authority. And so it all circles back around to that reality. And if you say, Anthony, see, this is a part of Christianity I don't like, the authority piece. I, it bothers me. God is this megalomaniac, right? He's crazy for power. And I get in part why we do that, because we see today, whether it be in households or in government, uh, there is an immense abuse of power that is put in our face. But I would just say, this is something far different. I used to say, imagine you're a king and then an invading army comes in, and what would you do to them? That makes no sense to us in our modern ears. So let me give you one more picture. Imagine I come home to my house, and there is another man standing there. And he says, hey, um, Sarah is now my wife, and your kids are now my kids. I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to be a better husband. I've changed the locks, and there's your clothes. You can take them, and you can get out of here. I got this. What do you think I'd do in that moment? That dude better run fast. Over 200 pounds of man is getting ready to crush him. And I hope you would actually understand that. That should make us absolutely furious if we were to walk into that. 
Because that is my wife. Those are my children. That is my house. And God is saying, this is my authority. And when we come in and say, no, no, I got this, God. I'm good. We have entered into his house. We have taken what is rightly his. But there's also hope in this. I don't have time to read it. I'm already over time. But if you go and read 1 Peter chapter 2, you'll see a picture of the cornerstone where God did take the kingdom away from the nation of Israel. And he says, whoever comes to this cornerstone, it's yours. It is your kingdom. In fact, you begin to proclaim the goodness of God in his marvelous light. The person who says, who says? Jesus doesn't mince words. We are crushed. It will destroy our lives. It will destroy our eternities. But there's also an invitation, an invitation to build on Him and Him alone. In the midst of all this, did you think that the landowner was a bit foolish? Why did he keep sending people? Didn't he know that these servants were going to die? Why on earth would he send his son? Well, friends, that's how gracious and how patient the grace of the Lord is. He knows we can't keep the law. There is no way we can enter into the kingdom on our own efforts. It is the efforts of his son who came knowing that he would be murdered that offers us salvation. Friends, Jesus says he is God. It's the virtue of who he is, the ultimate authority. And he demands us submit our will to him. But he also offers his grace and his mercy to build on that which will last. May we rest, sit, and wrestle in these words this week. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, probably one of the hardest things our sinful hearts and our broken culture can take in. We are not our own authority. You are our ultimate authority. Lord, for the heart that has not bowed to that, I pray that you would draw that heart to you before they destroy themselves on the cornerstone that is meant to be our ultimate. And Lord, for our hearts who have missed the exit, maybe we've called on you in faith, but over the course of time, we just, we've just quit submitting to your authority. We ignore you. Father, I pray that you will woo us back with your grace, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will follow you and you alone. Make us a people who submit to your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen.